Welcome back to the Host by Tori show and thank you so much for being here. Let's do a little recap on this past week. So I had my biggest quarterly work deliverable on Thursday. So I was excited to get that accomplished and move on to some of the marketing and conferences that I will have over the next few weeks, including some travel. Cam and I had a relatively low-key weekend just doing some wedding stuff. And we tried out a new sushi place in Austin called Tanari. But I also really just like let myself relax this weekend. Sometimes I can get pretty caught up in the have-to-be-productive mode where I end each weekend just exhausted. So I decided to give myself some grace this weekend and honestly, just chill. Some of you know, but I am deeply, deeply, deeply invested into my first time watching Game of Thrones, and we finished season six. And the last two episodes may have been the best TV I have ever watched. So there's that. Uh, Speaking of TV, Cam and I are Bachelor, Bachelor in Paradise people. And I truly cannot watch this season because of how cringe it is, which is just really unfortunate. This week has been pretty short for me. I'm out of office the next two days because I'm flying to LA today where I will be driving out of Palm Springs with some of my friends for my bachelorette this weekend. And I cannot wait. Excited to hopefully get some great weather, have some good food, have a mix of mocktails and cocktails, and just hang with my best friends. So I'll head to uh, San Francisco on Sunday for work that week, so a lot going on, but I'll keep this short and tell you about this week's episode. Today we have on one of my favorite follows online, Serena Wolf. Serena is a recipe developer, cookbook author, skincare fanatic, fashionista, and podcast host on Anxiety. Serena began her culinary journey at Le Cordon Bleu in Paris, which we talk about at the beginning of this episode. And after graduating, she wore a few different culinary hats, including private chef, culinary instructor, freelance writer, recipe developer, nutritional spirit guide, cookbook author, and now cooking class host. Serena lives in the New York area, splitting her time between Manhattan and Sag Harbor with her husband and her new dog, Taco, who you will hear a few times in this episode. I've always loved Serena's approach to cooking, how she hosts dinner parties, easy and simple tips in the kitchen, and her style. So with that, let's get into what we talked about. We talked about what it's really like to go to culinary school at Le Cordon Bleu feeling scared about the thought of content creation in perpetuity and how Serena has changed her business revenue streams over time to ultimately help people feel confident in the kitchen, what community really means and how you show up, Serena's love for dinner parties and how she has a lot of pride in taking care of her friends, Serena's biggest entertaining tip, and how to deal with your guests bringing something when you entertain and the best hostess gift. All right, let's dive in. Serena, thank you for coming on. I would love to dive in first to talking a little bit around you moving to Paris after college and going to Le Cordon Bleu, despite having no interest in cooking or food prior to that. So at what point when you first went there, talk us through first your backstory on just graduating college, not really sure what you necessarily wanted to do and why you went there and like figuring out when it was your calling. So... First of all, I always get extremely nervous when I have to boil this down into a very short <laughs> take as long story. as you need. However, okay, so I graduated from college in 2009 at the peak of the recession. Job opportunities were scarce to begin with. I w- felt very behind in that I did not know what I wanted to do with my life. I did think that I wanted to be a writer, although I was not sure in what context. I ended up, I, first of all, I majored in sociology and French, completely useless. (laughs) I had been an English major at some point and then switched to sociology. So when I graduated, I had tended to move to Paris for a year to try to do some writing jobs. I had a friend who had done the basic program at Cordon Bleu and was like, you know, you should really do this while you're trying to figure things out. It's a life skill that you'll never regret having. This is obviously coming from an extreme place of privilege that my parents were willing to allow me to go to culinary school and to pay for it. Like that has to be acknowledged right out of the gate. I got there. I was interested in cooking 
just not professionally <laughs> per se. I was a big cake decorator when I was young, which I rarely talk about boxed cakes, but I would do these elaborate designs and edible flowers and stuff on Duncan Hines box mix, which I stand by being excellent cake mix. I love a boxed cake. So I started at Cordon Bleu having no experience. Most of the people there were either people who had always wanted to be professional chefs, had already been working in restaurants, or were going through a life slash career transition and were in their 40s and 50s. Is it hard to get in? No. So I one of my big pet peeves is when people make things sound more impressive than they are. I always want to be completely transparent about this type of stuff. If you're willing to pay and fill out the application, it's very likely that you'll be accepted. This was 11 years ago. So it's very possible that they've changed their standards, but I'm 90% sure if you write the essay and fill out all the questions and send a tuition check, you can attend Cordon Bleu as well. Um, okay. So maybe I'll do that. <laughs> so I got there and I had this very romanticized notion, probably because I had watched Julie and Julia, like everybody else at that time, that I was going to be roasting chickens and drinking wine and having this very fun, romantic culinary school experience. Anybody that has gone to culinary school knows that that is not remotely what it is like. It is very intensive. It is high stakes and high stress, honestly, and not something that I would recommend for people who are just like, I love cooking. And I I, I get this a lot. Like people think like, it's my dream to go to Cordon Bleu. And I was like, I don't think you know what it's like there because it would not be your dream. (laughs) So you basically, the day-to-day life at Cordon Bleu is you sit through demonstrations that are three hours where they walk you through the techniques for a certain number of recipes and go through the entire thing. So it's basically a very intensive, long-form cooking class. And then you have your practical session afterwards that is also three hours where you execute the recipes that you were taught. And at first, it was just disastrous because I had no knife skills, I had no background, and I was just very all over the place in trying to execute these recipes. But I can't put my finger on, I wish I had a less cliche answer, but somewhere along the line, I would say like two and a half months in, I just really fell in love with it. I think for me, I found a lot of calm in the kitchen executing these recipes because they were so precise. There wasn't really room to be going off book. You were quite literally just learning and then sort of like taking a history test where you would memorize a bunch of stuff and regurgitate that information on the exam. It's the same thing. You were just executing these things. You could hear a pin drop in those kitchens. People were so focused on what they were doing. And I think also as an anxious person, it being able to channel everything into a timed, (laughs) graded experience every single day was lovely for my anxious brain. And I really fell in love with the, even though we were executing these recipes, I loved that you could riff on all of these things. I could see that even though I wasn't a competent enough cook to be creating my own recipes at the time. And because I had no background in cooking, I think I was a sponge. I had no bad habits to break. So I was able to learn how to cook from scratch, for lack of a better term, and really learn the right way to do things. Even though I'm not hugely passionate about French food, French culinary techniques are really the basis of most cooking. Like those fundamentals are invaluable. And I now, in hindsight, as a culinary instructor, I can look back and see how going into culinary school with no background. And like I said, being a sponge, I was able to see how certain instructors were really effective teachers and how others were not. And how now I always say in my classes and on Instagram and on my website and things like that, like there's no such thing as a stupid cooking question because you don't know what you don't know. 
And I think I now am able to better see and understand possible pain points for people in the kitchen because I really didn't know what I was doing. I mean, if I can do it, anybody else can do it. Like it really was just learning one thing at a time and all of those things building on one another and practicing and practicing and practicing until I became a confident cook. And I knew I didn't want to be in a restaurant kitchen pretty much from the get-go, but I started a blog while I was over there, which was 2000. I've seen snippets of of the videos (laughs) that you posted. Very strong time for blogging, but I also feel like everyone had a blog at that time and it had a pink background and terrible Blackberry photography and bad recipes. But I was sharing these recipes that I was making in my apartment in Paris and the dinner parties that we were having. And it was really just meant to be for my family and friends, but other people started reading it. It was very tongue in cheek. And what I realized through doing that as just a fun, creative project was that I really loved the storytelling aspect of food. I really liked helping people feel less stressed in the kitchen and making cooking feel a little bit less daunting and more fun. And I came to really love recipe development. So when I came home, I was working on growing the blog, but I was also working a lot of odd food jobs. I was hostessing at a restaurant. I was going to people's apartments and teaching them how to cook like a piece of salmon and some quinoa. And I started a column on my blog called The Dude Diet that was based on my then boyfriend, now husband, Logan's ridiculous eating habits. And that was what really clicked with people. And that's when the blog started to take off, was when I started doing this weekly Dude Diet column. And that got me a job as a private chef for a couple guys on the New York Giants for a couple years. So I had one player each season for two years. And that was sort of my version of cooking on the line, where I really cut my teeth and got good at cooking on the fly, recipe development, catering to people's personal preferences. And that ultimately helped me land my first book deal for the Dude Diet and then the Dude Diet Dinner Time. So that was, again, I did not do that succinctly, but that's the backstory. I think the backstory is really helpful. And your point on people feeling comfortable in the kitchen is a big deal because a lot of people have recipes, right? And it's like very easy to follow a recipe, but I think becoming a good cook and becoming comfortable in the kitchen is very different than just being able to follow a recipe. And what I like a lot about your behind the scenes is like, hey, I have this this leftover stew. It's not really enough for one. Let me show you how you can beef it up with a couple of extra ingredients. And there's not necessarily a recipe for it, but I'm using different flavor combinations or different techniques And that I think gives people a lot of confidence on like what works and what goes together. Like what are the bases and recipes and how can you bulk them up or even like heating up food a certain way for it to taste good. Like all of those things make someone so much more comfortable than just being able to like follow a recipe. And so I I find your helpful tidbits really easy and, and make it more approachable in the kitchen, honestly, which, which I think is great. And no, the background was helpful. I'm very interested in writing. You've had a couple of book deals and I know that those are so much harder and there's a ton of work that goes into all of those. And you can definitely share some of that if you want, but like doing the books, doing some of the the private chef, doing the virtual cooking classes now and getting into fashion, like what are you finding the most fulfilling in like food? And then on some of the side projects, do those just feel fun because they're different and other hobbies that you can become more passionate about or like want to hear just where you're finding the most fulfillment? I think what has been so interesting in hindsight is how my career, my passions, my, and my revenue streams have changed so much year over year. And partially, I think that's due to really tapping into, as you mentioned, the things that feel fulfilling for me. So for many years, I just developed dress. Like when I was private chefing and writing the books and stuff on social media as well, I was just sharing recipes and that was it. And I started to feel really burnt out and scared. Like, how can I sustain this for (laughs) the next 60 years that I'm going to be working? I think our generation is going to be working far longer than our parents' generation. I don't think we're going to be retiring at 65 And 
the thought of just creating new recipes in perpetuity felt really terrible. And so I had to think really hard about how I could create parts of my business that were not solely dependent on new recipe development, because there are people out there that can just churn out new recipes week after week. And that is not me. I, for whatever reason, my recipe development creativity is not just endless reservoir of new ideas. If I don't feel inspired or take some time off from just the recipe development portion of things, I think my recipes become boring and stale and I dread creating them. So I've really leaned into other aspects of food, entertaining being one of those things, putting together dinner party menus, even if it's not specific recipes, helping people curate meals that make sense, that can be partially made ahead of time. Things like, you know, serving an entree hot and making sure you have room temperature side so that you're not trying to time five different hot things while your guests are there. Figuring out big batch cocktail and mocktail recipes, figuring out things that are easily packable if you want to have picnics and stuff like that. I really leaned into the teaching part of my business starting in the spring of 2020, which I could never have anticipated would be such a huge part of my business. I started teaching public classes, but then also doing a lot of private and corporate events as well. I haven't been doing as private events any longer, but I still do do corporate events. And I really love the teaching side of things, which is so unexpected. And because I enjoyed that so much, I've translated that to being a huge part of the content I create on social media. And especially these past few months, I've been going back to basics, basic culinary techniques, basic ways to build your confidence in the kitchen, basic entertaining tips. And for a long time, I felt like nobody want, nobody needed that. Everybody knows how to do these things. But that's not true. And what I've yeah. come to realize is that creating a judgment-free space for people to ask questions about cooking and entertaining and anxiety and fashion and the other things that I feel passionate about is something I'm really proud of because I feel like people can come and be like, this is a stupid question, but, and I always have to be like, it's fine. There's no, that there's truly no such thing, especially if you're signing up for something like a cooking class. The, the whole purpose of that is to be able to ask your quote unquote stupid questions. But some people have been slicing onions in an inefficient way for 30 years because they were too That's embarrassed. still me. To, <laughs> to I don't know how to slice an onion. <laughs> And it's one of those, it, those are the simple things that once you learn. And so I've been sort of leaning into simple things that can help, hopefully, a lot of people build confidence in the kitchen and in other areas of their life. And that makes me feel really happy when somebody's like, I learned how to cook not mushy quinoa from you. And now like I am able to have quinoa bakes and delicious bowls. And it's so funny how these little things executing a recipe for the first time and feeling great about it, making your first pan sauce, whatever it is, these little things that really do boost confidence. That is what lights me up because I think that bleeds into other areas of your life. And that's what I've started to realize about cooking is for a lot of people, it's a chore. It's something that we all kind of have to do for ourselves or for our families at some point. And if you can make something that is kind of a necessity, more fun, or at the very least, less stressful, that is huge. And when you build confidence in the kitchen, it is something that you can see and taste immediately. And there is this kind of amazing snowball effect that it's like, oh, I didn't know how to cook and I was able to execute this thing. Maybe I don't know how to do X, Y, or Z, but if I start small and try, I can build confidence in other areas. And for me, like a great example of this is I used to not exercise 
it's ridiculous, but I just, I really didn't exercise until I was 30 years old. I walked places and I would go hiking in the summer and things like that, but I did not consistently exercise. And that's also ridiculous to say as somebody with anxiety, given the amount of information that moving consistently will literally change your life. And I started small and doing workouts a couple times a week and then three or four times a week. And I actually started with yoga years ago. And I remember in my first class, I couldn't do a single chaturanga. And then a few months later, I could do, you know, 20 in a class without thinking about it. And that really bled into other areas of my life. So if I can help people build confidence, whether it's in the kitchen, whether it's doing short workouts, whether it's making them feel empowered to move through the world with anxiety and and live a happy, full life, even dealing with that on a day-to-day basis, or build confidence in how they dress themselves every day in a way that feels good. That is my goal in any part of my business. And so right now I would say teaching and is really fulfilling to me, whether it's in class or on Instagram or through my website and or teacher books, past books, and things like my podcast, which is just kind of a passion project that I do with a friend of mine. It's called Spiraling. It's an anxiety-centric podcast that fills me up, but it's not a business venture, so to speak. It's more community building and just something that we feel passionate about. Um, And then I started doing this collaboration with my friends at CCH Collection, making button-down shirts and dresses. And that is a business venture and something that I love so much. And right now, I feel like is very much still in A, an iterative stage, but also I am still very much like in the trenches learning how this industry works. And that feels exciting to me because as I mentioned, the concept of doing just recipe development, which I was doing, you know, five or six years ago, forever and ever felt really terrifying. I feel proud that I am making strides to grow my business verticals in ways that prevent me from having to just develop recipes day in and day out forever. (laughs) Uh, No, I I love that so much. And I, I resonate so much with it, especially in the recipe development space. Social media has made it such that you have to be churning out content for people day in and day out. And to get that type of inspiration, and to your point, like do that for the next 20 years sounds <laughs> crazy. It sounds like it, it, it just sounds unsustainable. And similar to, to you, I don't want to just put something out there for the sake of putting something out there. And I've like made a, a vow to myself around putting out really great recipes or content instead of just like putting out a video or a TikTok or a reel to do it, to like get engagement. And so one question I had, it sounds like everything that you feel really fulfilled in is like based on community and helping your community. And so I'd love to hear how you think about just like showing up. And you talk about this sometimes on social media, but like you have to show up for your community and your community is a lot of it's really based on on social media. And so like, just like, how do you feel about that? Because there's so much rewarding aspect of that from what you get on like feedback from the cooking classes. And then there's the not so much rewarding feedback on give us the tour of your home and like, where's the shirt from? And like, you know, all the, all the demanding things from some community. And so like, how do you balance that? Oh, social media is tricky. I love it so much because of the community aspect that you mentioned. I think what's interesting is there are a lot of people that roll their eyes when somebody says community on social media. They're like, oh, this community or whatever. Like, sure, like, we're your friends. But what I will say to that is I'm really proud of the community that I built. They show up. They are engaged I talk to people all day long in the DMs. When I have events, people come to hang and it's the best. When I ask for feedback, people are very open and vocal and helpful. There are downsides to social media in that, I mean, people love to give unsolicited advice. 
I think that it is natural for humans to be voyeurs. So I do get asked a lot of very inappropriate personal questions. But I think, as I mentioned, anybody who's rolling their eyes at community being formed on social media either is not using social media as a community building tool or is not meant to be part of your community. I think that's a tough pill to swallow because I think we all fundamentally want to be liked. And it's tough if people, for whatever reason, because they don't truly, as close as you can get to knowing somebody on social media, we all have our lives off of social media as well. And you can only know so much about somebody based on what they share. So it can sometimes be tough because you're like, oh, like, I feel really misunderstood or I feel like these people, somebody, you know, there are definitely people out there that are lurking and disliking you. I feel very lucky in that if people are lurking and disliking me, they're either unfollowing or I don't know, they're texting their group texts about it. They're not (laughs) saying it to my face in the DMs, which I appreciate. But I think that when you say community or when I'm talking to people on social media, I, when I'm talking to the camera, I am treating it as if I am talking to a friend because that is the relationship that I am trying to cultivate. And if it's not for you, it's not for you. And if it is for you, then you get to be part of this inner circle. You know, like I have people who I literally correspond with multiple times a week. And that's what I will say to somebody who is looking to build community online is you have to engage, you have to. And now it has become unsustainable and and just not possible to respond to every single DM. But back in the day, it was, it was a smaller community and I still do my best to get to as many as I possibly can every day. And I think that that correspondence is important. And I also think that having strong boundaries is important so that you can continue to show up. So I'm not going to show you my house. I'm not going to talk to you about intimate details of my relationship with my husband or show my family and friends in a real way on social media. Because I think if you want to do have social media as part of your job, long-term and who knows how things will grow and change over the years. It's kind of terrifying to think about given how much things have changed over the past decade on social media. But I think if you want to be able to continue to show up in any real positive way, you have to have boundaries because you have to my goal is always to make sure that my life offline is better than my life online seems because it is really awful. And I, I love that. I, I think it would be really terrible to sign off the internet and be showing everything about my life online. And then when the camera's not on, be unfulfilled. So at the end of the day, if it means that I have to scale back my social media over the years to accommodate for, I don't know, like I don't have children currently, but if I had children in the future, I think I would feel very differently about what I share online. Even based, I <laughs> got a puppy this year, lots of unsolicited advice. You know, like I can only imagine what it's like for moms online. Yes. But I think showing up, I show up pretty much every single day in some way, even if it's just in the DMs. And I think that that consistency and the fact that people know that they can ask me questions and I'm going to do my best to respond and that I will tell them the truth about things that I recommend or if I like whatever it may be. I'm just trying to like, I just feel like honesty and accessibility is huge. But again, accessibility is a double-edged sword, right? So to people who are building community with regard to the boundary aspect, I think it's okay. As I've gotten older, I've started to question what I owe my community. Because the level of entitlement that the internet in its current form has bred is mildly alarming to me. And just as an example, people will send me itineraries for their vacation and ask me to go over it. They will ask me to plan four-course dinner parties with several several allergies and different things. They will ask me to send them an itinerary because they're coming to Sag Harbor where I live and they're going to be there for 48 hours and like, what should they do? 
And I used to, it was actually my husband who would look over my shoulder and see me writing these paragraph responses. And he was like, stop it. Stop it. You don't owe people hours and hours of free labor when you're already answering their questions and showing up to create recipes or give recommendations or whatever it is. Now, I am more than happy to answer any cooking question or give a restaurant recommendation. But sometimes I'm like, you would never doing something like planning a dinner party menu for 10 with four courses and different. That's that's a paid service that a lot of people that would take me a solid hour to put together at least. And like the concept that somebody would ask that of somebody they don't know so flippantly is kind of alarming and entitled. Yeah, <laughs> And I think that's well, the downside of social media. Or people just screaming at you to give them things. Yeah. Like links <laughs> or whatever. Well, that's the, the thing is that you're already giving away so much free content through... I mean, you have so many highlights, right? Of like, recommendations and what you wore at certain cities that you visited, right? So like people can already get that sort of content. You put out recipes, you give behind the scenes of dinner parties. Like I think the thing I've found challenging, similar to what you're saying is like, there's a lot of free content that's put out there and the consumer now has been conditioned of so much free content and they feel like time of someone is is not worth anything. And I've even seen that with some brands where they're like, yeah, for you oh, know, yeah. two inseed... <laughs> Two in-feed reels. Here's here's some product. And I'm like, I have a full-time job. And like, you yes. want me to film, edit, and like come up with something that's gonna engage with my audience for just product? Like, that doesn't make sense. And that that feels really hard of like people just feeling that your time isn't worth anything. I've always felt as though my time is worth a certain dollar amount and I'm going to outsource something if I don't feel like it's worth it because for my mental health, for my time, like I can't. I can't do that. And getting having the privilege to pay for like a cleaner every month or six weeks is worth it for me because of my time and what else I could be doing with that. And I think people's respect for time is just, yeah, to your point, non-existent with like the consumption that's been happening. And so I think the the dinner party is a good segue on hosting because I feel as though you are the ultimate host and give so many Thank great you. tips for behind the scenes. And I think accessibility here and comfort is very uh, similar to just like cooking where people feel very uncomfortable hosting. And there's a lot of stress and behind the scenes and putting it together and setting the table and like not knowing when to take certain things out of the oven. And like, what do you, (laughs) you know, just like constant stress. And so just your hosting experience and like desire to bring people together. I have always loved to host. So that is very, like even sleepovers when I was a kid, I have always loved to bring people together and make everyone feel comfortable and just have a good time. And Logan luckily is the same way. However, I don't think we really fell into a dinner party groove until our late twenties because we live in New York city. I feel like group dinners and stuff were often happening out at restaurants. We just went out a lot more in our 20s. And I don't think we started really leaning into the dinner party until later. And what was wild is I actually did a semester abroad at St. Andrews in Scotland when I was in college. And the dinner party was huge over there. Huge. I went to dinner parties multiple times a week and like the food was not fancy, but it was the culture. Like dinner party culture was very big and you would go and you would have a meal and everyone would hang out until very, you know, early the next morning. And it was really fun. And I think I got my first taste of dinner parties there. We did have a lot of dinner parties in Paris. And again, I think maybe it's just a cultural thing that people, this is a gross generalization, obviously, but that Europeans were entertaining in that way a bit younger then, and I would say that doesn't necessarily apply to all Americans, but Americans living in larger cities where I do think the culture in your early 20s is to go out. We started having dinner parties more regularly. Yeah, I would say in our late 20s, early 30s, we would do big parties like Christmas parties and birthday parties and things like that. But that was always more finger food, drinks, not really a seated dinner. So I don't think I really found my 
dinner party groove in terms of tablescaping and plated meals and creating the welcoming ambiance that I love so much until my early 30s. And we now, both of us, look forward to it so much and take a lot of pride in taking care of our friends. And I think dinner parties and entertaining in general is meant to be fun. So for anybody who really hates it, there's no need to do it. Why add something that you don't like into your life? Just be like, I'm not a host or hostess. And and that is 1000% fine. But if you're somebody who does like it or wants to do it more, but feel like you're not good enough at it, or it makes you really uncomfortable, I would say just dip your toe in. Start by doing sort of semi-homemade meals. Maybe start with a cocktail party and do cocktails, mocktails, and finger food. Don't do dinner yet, you know, and see how that feels and build up to it. My biggest entertaining tip is to put a lot of time and effort into the planning stage. It's more work up front, but it's actually going to make for less work on the day of, and it's going to streamline the process and make it a whole lot more fun. So I would say start as early as you can. If you're doing a Christmas party or things like that, and you know you're doing it, start whenever you have the free time. Start to make your menu. Start to make your prep schedule. I tend to pick my menu. Sometimes we have impromptu dinner parties and I'll decide the morning of, but if I know something's happening, I'll try to pick the menu at least a couple days in advance so that I can make my shopping list and my prep schedule. And prep schedules, I think, are game changers. If you're not already writing a prep schedule, what I like to do is write out everything, you know, my menu, write out everything that I'm going to make and then work backwards from the time guests arrive. And you don't have to put timestamps, although I do find timestamps helpful for like the couple hours leading up to the meal. But make a list, your prep schedule, typically, if you can start two days in advance, amazing. If you can start the day before, still awesome. If you have to start morning up, also fine. But If I have a menu that I'm working towards that I'm going to serve at 8 p.m. on Saturday night, I will write the prep schedule for things I can do Friday night. So can I make the pesto in advance? Can I prep all of the ingredients for the veggie sides, chop all the vegetables, have them ready to go? Can I marinate or, you know, dry brine a protein that I'm going to make? I will set the table the night before or the morning of. I will pick out my outfit. I will choose the music that I'm going to play. So the day of on the prep schedule, it will be, you know, finish XYZ, cook pasta, put chicken in the oven at 6.30 if we're eating at 8. That's where the timestamps become really helpful just to keep you on track. But being able to visualize your plan and knocking out all of the things that you can do as far in advance as possible is enormously helpful. And it will just take that angst of, am I forgetting something? Or there's too much to do before guests arrive off the table. And the truth is, is you may not always stick to the prep schedule. Yeah. You might not be done when guests arrive. And I always joke, I'm like, do not answer the door and be like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so behind. No, if you're behind, who cares? Let people in, make the salad while you're chatting with friends, assemble the cheese board while somebody is pouring themselves a drink. Nobody cares. Calling attention to it and being flustered stresses out your guests. Everybody vibes off the host. So if you are calm and collected, even if you're cooking an entire dinner with an audience, then everybody else is going to be having fun. If you are flustered and stressed, your guests feel stressed because they feel like A, they have to help or B, they want to be calming you down. So you're not actually having a conversation. They're just being like, don't worry about it. It's fine. Same goes for if you fuck something up in the meal. Like, don't be like, oh, I'm so sorry. The chicken's so dry. Because truthfully, people are just happy you're cooking for them. They're just having fun. Calling out we all are so self-critical. I am so guilty of this. I The things that I say to myself in my own head are 
deeply terrible and things I would never say to somebody else. And I think we all deal with that, but just let it ride. Nobody's expecting perfection by you. Well, I, I feel like this is so similar to the advice that I've gotten. Cause I, I told you before <laughs> this, like I'm getting married, I'm getting married and like everyone says, the energy from the bride the day of is like what other people are going to be going after. Yes. And I feel I feel like this is the same thing for the host where it's like, if your guests walk into a place that's high stress, anxiety for something that ultimately is not that big of a deal, they're just going to be feeling that exact same way. <laughs> totally. But wait, I have, I have so many questions on your dinner parties. First one being, do you usually have the same crew? Do most people usually know each other or do you like to bring together different cruise and like how do you choose based on like personality because for your reference I when my fiance and I moved to Austin we literally didn't know anyone like a couple odds and ends people and we started to meet a couple of different either couples or friends and one day we were like we're just gonna host a barbecue party like Austin has really great barbecue we're gonna get a bunch of barbecue and do like a taste test type situation and watch some football and we brought together literally no one knew each other who was there And coming out of it, people were exchanging numbers and hanging out the next weekend. And like that made me so happy, but it was because I didn't have like a crew to invite. It was just like a bunch of different people. And I I loved getting everyone together, but you also don't necessarily know how personalities are are going to to mesh and stuff. And so what like typically do you do? I, I assume you have like an established group of friends that you kind of have like rotating, but would love to hear your approach there. So for bigger parties it's kind of a free-for-all. Like our Christmas party every year, it's all of our friends meant, I would say now, years in, a lot of people have met each other at least once over the years, even if they're not friends. But it's more of a free-for-all situation. I would say we do have a lot of the same dinner party guests over and over. What I've found over the past three to five years, especially as we've entered a phase of life where most of our friends have kids and a lot of people have left New York City to move to their quote unquote forever home, whether that's back to where they are from originally or moving to the suburbs. Our social scene has become smaller. And I think that happens as you get older sometimes. So we have meshed more friends that maybe weren't initially friends, but have had a similar experience to the one you just mentioned where they become friends. So for example, out in Sag Harbor, my best friend from college and her husband moved out to a town, you know, one town over from us full-time four years ago. My husband's best friend from high school lives in a neighboring town full-time as well. So those two couples didn't know each other well in the past. They are now very good friends because we've had, we started mixing that group years ago and now we all see each other all the time. I love mixing friend groups and introducing people to one another that I know will get along really well. I have a couple friends who are for lack of a better term, connectors. Like it is just a superpower of theirs that they know who is going to get along and people that they think should meet and then they they bring them together. I I don't know if that I don't fall into that category, but I do really like to introduce people to one another that I know will get along. And so it really is a mix. It can go awry sometimes. Uh, I've never had a terrible experience, but I've definitely had friends where I was like, oh, maybe that seating arrangement wasn't the best choice. Yeah. And then you adjust that going forward. But I really think there's, if you are in a new place, inviting people over for dinner is a great way to get to know them versus going out to a restaurant, it feels a little bit more intimate. And also you can, you know, you never know a restaurant might be loud or it's a little bit chaotic. And I feel like inviting someone into your home is the most, (laughs) the most sort of intimate invitation you can offer. And I've done that in the past with a few people who have now become very close friends. So 
I would say if you're afraid to invite people that you're not super close friends with over for dinner, just try it. Because if you end up not liking them that much, you do not have to invite them back. (laughs) But also I think what holds people back from doing that is our egos. We want to impress people. We, I think that's just human nature. And I think don't let your ego hold you back being like, I'm not a good enough cook to invite people over for dinner, or I don't have a fancy dining room table, or I don't have a matching set of dishes for eight. Nobody cares. Mix and match. Work with what you have. I think that, again, we are our own worst critics. I have never walked into somebody's house when I've been invited for a meal and been like, can you believe they only had six matching plates? Amateurs. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. In terms of people coming over, I think this is something that I haven't figured out totally, but like, do you ask people to bring anything? I know you're not a huge baker. Do you ask people to bring dessert? Do you ask them to bring a salad? How do you approach that? And then also... What is your favorite hostess gift to give? And do you feel like people always have to bring a hostess gift? Oh, these are great questions. Okay, so to keep it tight, I think that everybody is a different type of host and you should not be embarrassed ever if somebody offers to bring something and asks what they can bring. You are very much entitled to ask them to bring something within reason. So if they're like, what can I bring? I'd love to bring something. And you don't want to make dessert being like, we'd love if you brought something for dessert. Awesome. For me, the concept of somebody bringing dessert is amazing because I don't like to bake. And when we're entertaining with close friends, people know that about me. So they're now our, you know, close friends are always like, I will bring dessert. Like it's not an offer. It's just like, they know that's, (laughs) that would be super helpful to me. And I love that. But it is big. I can't stand when people want to bring food to a dinner party. It's like, I have planned a menu. I know exactly how I want to execute it. And that's just my own neuroses and wanting to control the meal itself. But I think there's, and it's the same way. I, when people come over, if I'm not finished prepping dinner and they're like, can I help you? I will give a very firm, polite no, like sit down, (laughs) have a drink. I would much prefer that you talk to me because it's not helpful, especially if somebody, you know, you're going to have to be like the knife's in the knife block over there. If you can grab a cutting board, sure. You can chop some salt. Like it's more work to have to set somebody up to help me than to just continue to execute it myself. But I think that the most common things that we will ask people to bring are dessert if we're doing, we do a lot of beach picnics in the summer. We'll we're, we'll do the bulk of the meal, but we'll that's the one instance where I'm like, bring a packable side because that's just an easy. If then it's more of a potluck situation, but dessert or booze, honestly, or a mocktail, whatever people want to bring. Like I think that even though we have enough to serve everyone. I do think that sometimes people just want to bring you something. And if you can tell them something, it will actually make them feel less anxious. Like if you're like, yeah, bring a bottle of wine, then they feel productive bringing the bottle of wine. And that's very helpful. Or, you know, like in the summer, if we're having like a pool party or something, it's like, if you can bring some lemonade and they're like, amazing, I'll bring the lemonade. And it just gives them- Because then they feel like they're contributing- to something. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So I think, or, you know, worst case scenario, can you pick up some ice? Like they're like, yeah, like that's so helpful. (laughs) (laughs) As far as hostess gifts go, I really love bringing people good olive oil and that's subjective, but I think we, for the most part, everybody uses olive oil at some point. So I think that's a great option. Fancy salt. I love like a fancy mark, like a, a rim salt that you can use for cocktails and mocktails. Like red clay makes a great spicy margarita salt that people are always happy to get. You can get like a little gift pack and put it in a yeah. cute bag. Funny cocktail napkins, I think are always well received. Do you have a brand you like? Not particularly. I think there's, oh, I'm going to blank on the name right now. I'll find it and send it to you so you can put it in the show notes. But they're like kitschy. I just think that you you have to know your host. But if they like kitschy things, like people always bring us funny cocktail napkins. And I love them because we actually use them. So stuff for the kitchen. If you're not going the traditional sort of 
bottle of something or bringing something that you've been asked to bring. I think olive oil, fancy salts, and funny cocktail napkins are pretty foolproof. You can also bring flowers, but sometimes that is a little stressful for a host and that they feel like they have to be like, oh, they're beautiful. Maybe they don't want to put them out because they've already decorated. You got to get a vase and put water and it's like a whole thing. So yes, I feel very stressed when people bring flowers because like at the moment, I literally have one vase. And if I already have flowers in there, I have like nowhere to put them. So it's like, it's very uncomfortable. Totally. Okay, Serena, let's do some rapid fire to end and then let us know what where we can find you and some current business goals. But first question, if someone had to describe your hosting style in one word, what would it be? Comfortable. Love that. What is your favorite drink? Uh, Champagne. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) I'm like, or... I love that. Uh, I think I know the answer to this, but what's your favorite type of get-together? A dinner party, definitely. Just a dinner party. And then... I'm assuming, I know this one, but do you prefer to host or be hosted? I prefer to host, but I do love to be hosted, honestly. I just want to make that clear. I love Is there like a control aspect of of like being hosted that you feel anxiety about? Or is it like you just don't want people messing with your hosting, but when uh, when other people are hosting you, you're totally fine? It's that if I'm the host, I want to just be doing my thing and making people feel... I just want them to feel relaxed. And when I think my thing is when I'm a guest, there are two things that happen. For whatever reason, people will be like, I'm so scared to feed. Like as if I'm going to judge their cooking, which I would never do. (laughs) So that's one. I'm like, I am not remotely judging your cooking. The other is I just think I'm highly, because of what I do, I'm highly attuned to other people's stress levels So when I am being hosted and I can sense that the host is really stressed out, Mm. I feel terrible because I don't want to say anything and call attention to it. I never would, but I want to be like, I'm so happy right now. You don't have to be stressed. (laughs) Yeah. It's like you're watching it and you're like, feel bad that they're, feel that way. But like, there's nothing you can do to necessarily help. Okay, great. So in terms of where we can find you, how we can support you best. What's the next thing we should be looking out for? Let us know. Well, you can find me, you can find pretty much everything in one place on domesticate-me.com. That's where my classes, blog shop, archive of recipes, stuff about my books live. You can find me on Instagram at Serena G. Wolf. You can find my collection with CCH at cchcollection.com. And in terms of things I have going on right now, uh, cooking classes, my cookbooks, The Doodad and The Doodad Dinnertime are always available wherever books are sold. If you happen to be anxious, uh, Spiraling, my podcast, might be a helpful slash just fun (laughs) listen. And that's, yeah, that's it for now. I love that. I'm a Serena Wolf fangirl because I have both do diet books. I have two <laughs> CCH collection Thank shirts. You. I listen to Spiraling and I can tell you all of them are great in whatever face you want it, whether that's fashion. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. As you know, I am not a specialist and I'm not trained to give advice whatsoever. These are just my own personal thoughts and conversations. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the show if you can. It helps so, so much. And feel free to find me on social channels, host by Tori. See ya.